musical linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, today I'm going to play the final segment of the February 1991 Terrence McKenna workshop that uh, we've been listening to for the past three weeks. And for what it's worth, this is going to be my last podcast of a McKenna talk for a little while. Maybe for a few months at least, maybe till summer. You see, the other day I was uh, at the gym and thought I'd go back and listen to some of the salon's older podcasts. Now, <laughs> on my phone, I use an app that's uh, simply called Podcasts, and it's the one that comes up uh, when I search on Podcast App in the iTunes Store. It's the first one that comes up there. And if, like me, you are using our old, original RSS feed, then you can uh, scroll down through all 486 podcasts and uh, stream them directly from there. And by the way, if you are looking for that feed, just go to psychedelicsalon.com, click the podcast link at the top menu, and that's going to take you to a page that also lists uh, every podcast line by line. And in the right sidebar, you'll find a link to all of our RSS feeds. So anyway, I was scrolling through the podcast listing, and it seemed to me as if every other podcast featured Terrence McKenna. Well, in fact, uh, today's podcast marks the 230th time that Terrence has been featured here in the salon, which means that, uh, well, he's actually dominated almost half of the salon's podcasts, and uh, that seems like enough for a while. Now, I still do have a bunch of his talks uh, on tapes that I haven't checked out yet, but I'm going to let them rest in their box in my garage for a while so we can listen to a wider variety of speakers. In fact, tomorrow morning I'll be visiting with Emmanuel Seferos, the founder of DanceSafe, which, as you know, is the nonprofit organization that you've probably seen at various events around the world and who will test any little pills that you may have uh, for their purity and actual content. And if all goes well, our conversation will be featured in next week's podcast. But for today, at least, we will once again be listening to the Bard McKenna. Now, Terrence begins today by discussing his quandary over the DMT experience and his interactions with what he thinks of as machine elves. And then, wondering aloud about their origin, he asks the question, how can I tell that it's not just coming from me? Now, if you have ever been in deep psychedelic space, where you thought that uh, maybe you were encountering entities from another dimension, well then, this is a question that you should be asking yourself as well. For my part, while I have had quite a few deep psychedelic experiences, I still can't say with absolute certainty that it's not all just happening in my own brain due to a major change in its chemistry. Now, <laughs> I know that this may upset some of our fellow saloners, uh, most of them probably, but I want to be honest with you. While Terrence says that the test for him is whether he could have thought up these things without first ingesting a psychedelic substance or uh, doing it on the natch, as he calls it, I, uh, I may be giving my imagination more credit than is due, but in all honesty, I haven't ever encountered any thought in, in theospace that I couldn't have come up with on my own. Of course, uh, I probably have a much higher opinion of my own imagination than it deserves. 
In any event, uh, this is something that I think any professional psychonaut should be giving some consideration to. But before you completely give up on me as a lost cause when it comes to entities from other dimensions, I must also let you know that after listening to what Terence is about to say, I can uh, return to questioning my own ideas along these lines and uh, come to the conclusion that, uh, well, maybe I'm just becoming a grumpy old man. <laughs> so uh, please don't let me persuade you one way or the other. As the good Dr. Leary often said, you have to think for yourself. This is something that it's up to you to decide for yourself and uh, then adjust your life accordingly. Now, uh, here once again is Terrence McKenna. Well, so this is our last opportunity to raise questions or get clarity. Uh, does anybody want to have a go at it? Yeah. Um, you mentioned a few times with uh, mushrooms and DMT where you had, um, it was kind of like an envelope come over you or a tent, uh, and uh, where these elves would tell you to follow them, and it was like they would show you knowledge. Could you explain that? Well... Yeah, the characteristic of the DMT flash is this encounter with these small, alive sentences which are coming, approaching you and showing you stuff, telling you stuff. It seems to me as a rationalist that if you're having a conversation with someone, there must be rules in communication theory. Someone must understand this. You know, in artificial intelligence, they have this rule that what is artificial intelligence? Well, if it's a black box and you can't tell whether there's a machine or a person in there, it's an artificial intelligence. Uh, you might set up a similar test with the alien in the head. I've tried to figure out how can I tell that it's not me? How can I create a logically tight trap for it so that I can absolutely tell that um, it isn't me. And I haven't been able to figure out how to do that. This learning stuff from entities is not respectable in our present official intellectual world. But when you start asking questions, you'd be amazed where entities have acted and with what force. For example, I mean, this is, a, to my mind, one of the great suppressed stories of modern history. Uh, in August of 1619, a retreating Habsburg army camped in Ulm in southern Germany for a few days. They had were retreating from a campaign against Prague where they had successfully deposed the winter king and queen. And in this group of troops, of several thousand troops, was a young French adventurer, 22-year-old soldier of fortune. And uh, that night, in August, the night of August the 12th in Ulm, he slept and had a dream. <clears throat> and an angel appeared to this young man and said, the mastery of nature is achieved through measure and number. This was René Descartes, 
this was the founder of what is called materialism, rationalism. His marching orders were given to him in the same way that Muhammad got his marching orders. All of modern science is the, was created at the behest of an angelic entity. Well, they're not talking about this at Caltech and MIT, let me tell you. So how many times in history have uh, voices taken the wheel. Uh, another example, one that's dear to my heart, is, because uh, I kind of identify with him, is Alfred Russell Wallace, who was a poor surveyor from Devon, who was out uh, uh, collecting insects in Indonesia in the last century, and he got a fever on the island of Ternate, malaria. And in the midst of this fever... He understood the solution to the great problem of 19th century biology, which was called the problem of the species. He saw how random mutation and natural selective forces could produce biological diversity. And when he came down from this thing, and this was again an angelic deliverance in the height of this fever, he... uh, He couldn't figure out what to do with it, so he wrote a letter to the greatest scientist of the age, which was Charles Darwin, in London. And when when Darwin opened this letter, you know, just said, holy shit, this guy has scooped me. Twenty years I've been working on the origins. Here it is in four paragraphs. Who is this guy? Well, so then it became the Darwin-Wallace theory of evolution for its first 50 years and then Wallace dropped out of the picture because he disgraced himself by an interest in spiritualism but uh, uh, you can understand why uh, if the guy got the original vision from an angel can I come in on spiritualism? sure Mackenzie King who was Prime Minister of Canada for about 40 years all through the war it was always kept secret that he was totally a spiritualist, and even if you read history since the war, when he died, suddenly everyone discovered this, and then there's been a terrific clamp on it again. But I know Canada's a small country, but the Prime Minister of a country very involved in decisions on war was getting most of his stuff from spiritualism. That's right. This is part of what I was talking about last night with the time wave. The alchemical dreams of the 16th century, of the Philosopher's Stone and all that, never really died. Instead, the triumph of secular secularism and so-called modern science, post-Newtonian science, pushed the, the dream somewhat into the background. But after... Um, James Clerk Maxwell and Helmholtz and those people discovered the electromagnetic fields in the 1870s. Uh, I mean, we are totally intellectually at home with the idea of electromagnetic radiation. We don't see what an occult thing it must have seemed to the 19th century where they had just risen to the place where they conceived everything mechanically hard objects whizzing through space, force, angular momentum, conservation of energy. Well, then comes Helmholtz and Clerk Maxwell and these people, and they say, oh no, there's a diffuse 
invisible vibratory medium that extends throughout all space and just, you know, complete occult uh, kind of vocabulary. Well, that has now, because it could be formalized through uh, the... uh, Maxwell's equations for magnetic radiation, somehow the occult side of it dropped away. For us, that's how you take the magic out of something, is you stride to the blackboard and write a tensor equation of the third degree, and then somehow you have it. So these fields became very mundane and could be used for radio and television and so forth. It took someone like Marshall McLuhan to point out that the Christian program for the entry of God into history reaches uh, the uh, period of the intercession of the Holy Ghost once Marconi throws the switch, that the electrical web of noetic information, the instantaneous transformations of the global logos, this is the age of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, you know, it's a funny thing how effects in nature can be drawn forward and concentrated. For thousands and thousands of years, electricity was understood to be that thing that you see when you take a uh, cat skin into a darkened room with an amber rod and rub it rub the cat fur with the amber rod, and then as you stroke it in the darkness, you see static electrical discharge through the cat fur. And this was known since Hellenistic times. It was a magic show demonstration. But it took the concrescence of novelty, the descent of the Holy Ghost into history, to draw the crackle out of the cat fur and set it as an envelope around the planet, transducing the information that knits together the dominant species. Well, how many things lie about us, present at hand, uh, ready to be uh, somehow reconfigured in some uh, salutary or salvific uh, way. One of the things, one of the insights that I had from all the fiddling with shamanism in the Amazon was that everything can be simple. If things aren't simple, we haven't thought about it long enough. (laughs) That's why I like that population idea yesterday because there may be a yet simpler idea than that but that really gives me hope because if you don't have a simple idea you can be pretty sure you don't have the solution the solution is going to have to be pretty simple and straightforward because it's going to have to be executed by the combined uh, commitment of millions and millions of people Basin with Gregory Basin, you started a lot of like Alfred Russell had a slightly different version of evolution than Darwin did. How Wallace did. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes, it's an, it was an interesting intellectual episode, and it actually has something to do with what we're talking about, because there have been many descriptions of what the controversy between Wallace and Darwin really was. What it came down to 
And I don't think most modern people realize this about evolution in the 19th century. These guys, like Darwin and Thomas Henry Huxley and Charles Lyell, they were uh, waging war against Christianity. They were the great warriors of atheism. And the way it worked, the way atheism was waged intellectually in the 19th century was it took the form of a denial of purpose. This is called in theological language teleology. Purpose is telos. And a huge amount of the intellectual energy of science in the 19th century was put toward showing that there is no purpose, no end state that... See, many people think of it, when they think of evolution, they think of higher and higher ascents towards some kind of ideal. No biologists, biologists curl their lip at this interpretation. A biologist believes that you have random mutation, random, colliding with selective pressures in the environment, and out of that you get a best fit, and that best fit is maintained and passed forward in time. But it was absolutely anathema to the 19th century scientists to suppose that there could be, you must never speak of purpose, you must never speak of goal, you must never speak of an arrow toward an end point. They said, no, no, it's much more a a random walk. You know, in Hamlet where he says, uh, it's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. That's precisely the position of 19th century biology on what biology is about. Well, the problem there is that theory of evolution works very well when you're looking at the uh, evolution of species, uh, evolution of one ladybug, you know, the plain orange ladybug into the lady, the conspecific nearby species with black spots. This all works very well. But what it doesn't explain is the emergence of the phyla, the great forces that pulled forward the phyla. The other thing it doesn't explain are phenomena like metamorphosis, for instance, in insects. If evolution proceeds out of uh, random mutation working against natural selection, well then a process like metamorphosis where thousands of genes have to be coordinated perfectly with one another to take a worm and transform it into a winged flying creature with a sexual potential. I mean, thousands of genes are coordinated to do this. Well, how can you imagine any random evolutionary event that would give you a halfway point in metamorphosis? It's either all or nothing. So Wallace looking at the same data that Darwin was looking at, uh, said there must be a telos in nature. And in that sense, he is the founder of the revolution in science that I tried to carry forward last night with the time wave. Because this was entirely a theory of telos, of being drawn toward an omega point. Well, 
recently, Darwin, I mean, Wallace and my ideas have gotten good support from uh, these frontier areas of mathematics called uh, chaos theory and dynamical systems theory because they deal in a quite rigorous fashion and with no excitement or arm waving with these things called attractors. And attractors are actually um, basins in the energy topology of a process (coughs) such that all things in their vicinity are drawn to them. Just as if you imagine you had a flat floor, but then there was a a steep dip in it somewhere. Well, when you swept this floor, you would discover all the dirt in the bottom of the dip because that's the minimum energy state for the system. I think that history is uh, the the great um, test for all of this new mathematics and holistic thinking and generalized metaphor making. It's one thing to predict the course of a stock market or the uh, fluctuation of an ecosystem, but if our mathematical models are good for anything, then they should be good for modeling the matrix in which we find ourselves. So what we looked at last night was just like our entry into the soapbox derby of historical modeling, which is now going on at quite a furious rate because uh, planning is very, very important. I mean, we have to make some very important moves in the next 30 years. The wrong move will checkmate us. I mean, this is a heart-in-your-throat kind of situation. We need to study the board very carefully you know, just one more wrong move and uh, there could be a cascade of some sort in one of the many critically poised uh, domains that threaten us that we would not then be able to reverse. you think we can make a wrong move? Oh, I think we could definitely make mm-hmm. a wrong move. It's easy to imagine wrong moves. I mean, here's a wrong move use white phosphorus bombs to torch the oil sands in Saudi Arabia so that you get a nuclear winter without a nuclear war. That would be a wrong move. Uh, You know, cease to resist the spread of infectious disease. Uh, Nuclear proliferation. Now, so far, we've shown a remarkable ability to locate and make wrong moves. The banking system, uh, the role between men and women, the stuff we were talking about yesterday, how much resources should be committed to space, how much to feeding the starving, how much... uh, It's an energy problem. We actually have a finite amount of energy, and we are in a box and we need to calculate, you know, how many paths are there out of the box? How much do they cost? How long do they take? And who eats it in each deal? Because it's very hard to find a way out where somebody doesn't eat it. I mean, uh, that's why I was so fascinated that the mushroom could offer a, 
uh, instantaneously offer what seemed to be a fairly humane, non-coercive, non-invasive, and extremely cogent and bare-knuckles suggestion as to how we might solve our problems. I mean, you could commission three UN studies and not get that much plain talk. Yeah. Um, For those who want to uh, explore the mushroom experience, do you have any insight or guidelines for them, uh, books to read? uh, How to communicate. How to communicate. Books to read. Well, I always recommend, because it's easy to get and, and very good, dense information, that book called Hallucinogens and Shamanism, edited by Michael Harner from Oxford University Press. And then, you know, there's a plethora of, of publishing. I, I, it's so natural to me that I almost forget to say it, but uh, uh, if you're interested in this kind of thing, your first stop has got to be the library. You know, you have to educate yourself because this is the most lied about area of human relations. I mean, it's out there with transsexuality and stuff like that. I mean, it's an extremely misrepresented, misunderstood, hated, feared, loathed, and uh, an attacked place. So you have to learn the players and the positions and how to read this pharmaceutical literature. The real data is in journals. I mean, there are scientific guilds and brotherhoods where all this information moves around fairly freely. In fact, Esalen over the years has played host many times to the high priests, uh, the chemists, and the and the psychotherapists, and uh, people like that who are making it happen. So, but it's all in journals. Very little of it gets behind hard cover. In terms of recent publishing that you might find interesting anyway, there was a festschrift published for Gordon Wasson called The Sacred Mushroom Seeker that has a bunch of interesting articles in it and a strange article by me that does not discuss the veldt of Africa either. Yeah. Did you say on the first day that you, you weren't taking mushrooms anymore that the conditions in the world were such now that we couldn't pay you to take five drive grams? Well, I meant fairly temporarily. My my requirement is, I mean, because even when I get all kinds of weird stuff, I mean, I get spread out. I mean, I see aircraft I can't identify taking off from airfields in Thornbush country, and I can't even tell the war I'm looking at, you know? Is this South Africa? Is it Zimbabwe? Is it Libya? Where are we? What's going on? that's in the early stage, the swimming through it, you know. Do you think that that actually, do you think it's because of your knowledge about what about current events and the fact that you know this stuff is going on, or do you think that whatever the turmoil is, the mushroom knows about, or it exists independently of you? No, neither of those. I think that... Uh, what the the way to think of these psychedelics is uh, they amplify the morphogenetic field, and so it's not because I follow current events. It's not because the mushroom knows that. It's because it's all around us in the air. It's like all the FM and short wave and long VHF, UHF, all this information. It's as though suddenly you're transparent to it and you actually feel the planetary body 
heaving, you know, and now there's a huge volume of information moving in Arabic and Pashtun and all that, and you just, you know, it's real. It is not a hallucination. You are entering, this is the unconscious of the human species, hardwired. It begins behind your eyes, and when you let down into it, you know, it's like uh, Gibson cyberspace, except that you don't need the fancy board and all that. That's just to give permission to realize that this is happening. No, it's a penetration of the collectivity. I mean, you can really feel it. It's really there. It's the aura of the human and biological envelope of the planet. And I don't know how deeply you can read it. I mean, obviously, like the time wave is, for me, it's a kind of blueprint of the thing I see in hyperspace. It's a, it's a CAD-CAM sketch of the, of the philosopher's stone or of the transcendental object. That's the kind of shadow it throws. But it's the whole collectivity. You know that, I can't remember who wrote this poem, I think nobody very interesting, it's kind of dismissed as doggerel, but do you know that poem, I saw eternity the other night, a golden ring? Well, the wave is eternity as a golden wave, it's that all time is a standing wave in eternity. Plato said this, he said, time is the moving image of eternity means that eternity is some kind of higher dimensional object and the present is like a a wave moving through this, moving around the donut of eternity. And the, the time wave then shows the fine structure in this donut. If you could assimilate this idea and expand it and connect its vocabulary to the vocabulary of the perennial philosophy, I think you would see that they're saying the same thing. They're saying, you know, uh, everything already exists in some higher dimension, yet there is free will within certain constraints. And... uh, Somehow the, t- the task of the, of, uh, I don't know, self-growth or spiritual understanding is to get a perspective on this, get an image, to become all space and all time. That's what those guys and gals sitting there for 40 years in Zazen must be looking at. They have become everything not in some metaphoric or pissant way, but they have become everything. And, that's, uh, and they've done it through an act of identification with the internal image of the totality. I mean, this sounds to me awfully, almost it's too airy-fairy, but it's because we don't have a control language for it. But it's a, it's a real thing. We must learn to be able to command the image of the totality rather than think in terms of telepathy or something like that. I've had experiences like in the Amazon taking mushrooms and, uh, well, basically taking mushrooms, where it would seem that I could see at all times almost out of the corner of my eye, I could see the whole planet, like a, like a whole earth decal. 
I, I was just always aware of it. I, I could see it in the upper right-hand corner of my vision. If I just glanced up, it would be there. Well, you know, to have it not as an image, but as a hypercard button into the thing, uh, then all reality becomes, you know, the stack you're moving through. And, uh, and boundaries dissolve. That's the thing. I mean, your boundaries are going to dissolve. You just might as well come to terms with that because they're going to plant you. So uh, why not experiment with it ahead of time so, so that you have some, some, uh, something that you can do with it, you know? And when you dissolve your boundary into the living world, then, you know, you become everybody. A la Humphrey, Humphrey Chimptonier Wicker, the hero of Finnegan's Wake. Here comes everybody, you know? You look here and he's Chaucer. You look there and he's Churchill. You just can't tell who this is. Somebody, yes. Uh, when you think of the year 2012, do you envision a range of how we could live as we've never lived before? I don't know the, the details. I can't quite yet see clearly how it's going to work. But I think that we are preparing our own new world and it's a new world in the imagination. The imagination is a is real estate. You know, this thing that my mother taught me, if wishes were horses, beggars would ride. That's the program of psychedelic crypto-anarchy. We want wishes to be horses. The beggars shall ride. And that's why I gave a certain amount of energy to virtual reality. I'm trying to figure out where is this doorway into this other place. Because there is another place. I mean, that's what DMT teaches you incontrovertibly. I guess that's the real shocker, hush my mouth and blow me away. There's another, there's some, there's a parallel world, not light years and centuries away, but right here. Uh, and it's not, you know, the Pentagon isn't investigating it. You're investigating it. And uh, uh, sure, and this parallel world, when you break into this elf infested space there is such love such affection for humanity that you know it moves you to tears I mean why do these alien things care so much who are they what are they I mean one of the ideas that I've been pushed toward recently and uh, I don't know why it took me so long to get around to this, but my therapist could probably tell you. Uh, if you were to go to uh, shamans in the Amazon or the hills of New Guinea or somewhere and, and say, describe the DMT thing and ask, what, what's going on here? What's this about? Without hesitation, I think, most shamans, most shamans would just say, oh, well, uh, th those are the ancestors. So that's the bit with us shamans. We, we contact the ancestors and then we cure and find lost objects. And so, well, this is, uh, in, all the in all the psychedelic voyaging I did, I never really entertained the possibility that with all this boundary dissolving we were going to do, that we were going to 
actually flirt with dissolving the boundary between life and death itself, is it possible that there is some kind of ecology of souls over yonder? Is it possible that the 100,000-year-old claim of shamans that they can pass from here to there and back again is so? This... I mean, we feel so weird about death that we don't know how exactly to look at this. But if we are conservative in our hunt for the source of the alien voice and the steering mechanism of history, if we're conservative in our search for the source of that, we shouldn't reach to the conclusion that uh, Galactarians from, uh, uh, you know, Zanebel Ganubi are in charge of things. It's far more likely that, you know, our dead ancestors are in charge of things. After all, after us, they are the only human thing we know. There's nothing else. And uh, the so then when I go in there, I carry this thought with me. Am I in the bardo? You know, is this the way station to the lesser lights? Uh, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure. The and sometimes I think that what happens at the very center of the DMT flash, the thing that is so mind-boggling that no one has ever retained a memory of it that they could discuss with the gang, is uh, you confront your soul. You somehow meet the double, a la Carlos Castaneda, God forbid. But you actually come up against a being which as you interact with this being, it dawns on you who it is, and it's you. And then, you know, there's some kind of an apotheosis, an apocatastasis, an outbreak of Greek of some sort for sure. And... Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Uh, this... Reality obliterating flash that I'm describing as the sine qua non of psychedelic voyaging, I have a real question in my mind as to whether or not the shamans in the Amazon uh, encounter it very often because it's very hard to concentrate the DMT sufficiently to deliver that much to the synaptic cleft all at once. The brilliant strategy they've worked out is the slow-release oral DMT in the ayahuasca mix. If you make ayahuasca stiff, you can, after an hour and a half of pranayama and breath control and like that, you can work yourself into a place where you say, you know, my God, this does look like a DMT flash. I mean, it's happening more slowly, and you've had more time to get used to it because it's taken you a while to get there. But you can approach that thing. The thing is, uh, people are universally the same, i found. And even among shamans, there's a lot of, number one, bluff and fear. And it's very rare that you meet a real exploring soul who is not afraid of it at ultra-high doses. So a lot of the shamanism in Peru is vitiated 
by the need to cure and make money and have a position in the community and uh, and also the style in Peru is not to demand visions most you meet a lot of people in Peru who have taken ayahuasca who don't have the faintest idea of what is possible and if you should have occasion to show them or to be involved in seeing them encounter it then they say you know I had no idea. It's a very subtle um, kind of thing. And uh, the snuffs, then, are the other DMT uh, approach. And for me, the snuffs are so complicated, there's a lot of problems with the snuff. I think it's an overrated thing. Number one, there's the physical problem of taking it. You have a bamboo tube about this long and you load it up with a tablespoon and a half of ground, woody, toasted seed material. Well, then you sit and your friend sits in front of you. You put the tube up your nostril and your friend blows as hard as he can. You don't do it because you would restrain yourself too much and it wouldn't work. It has to be somebody else. It's like pulling a tooth out. Somebody else has to do it. So he blasts this up your nostrils. You know, it's like being hit in the face with a two-by-four. I mean, you, you scream, you fall over backwards, you salivate, you squirm around in the dirt a little bit, and then you sit back up, and by this time, he has reloaded for the other nostril. And then, you know, you go through the whole thing again. Well, then after, and then it comes on, and it is tryptamine-like, and it is, you know, the vision clarifies, and the energy rises, and you're loaded, really loaded, but uh, when you uh, do a chemical analysis on the varola resin, the resin of these Americaceous trees that are the source of this, uh, it's not a clean source of DMT. There's a lot of junk in there, too. There's not only DMT and 5-MeO-DMT, but there's also alpha-methyltryptamine, monomethyltryptamine, uh, and, and numer- uh, some beta-carbolines. And this is not what you want in a drug a source drug plant. You want a clean signature. That's why Socotria viridis is so preferred in the ayahuasca brew because there's nothing in it but NN-dimethyltryptamine. It's, uh, it's very clean. So those are the sources. And then nowhere else in the world did these tryptamine cults arise. We have no evidence of it ever existing except out through the Caribbean islands and down as far south as the Atacama Desert in Chile. But the the DMT, the tryptamine complex, is entirely new world. Yeah. The parallel world that you come to see exists, that you access through DMT, is there also a parallel world like that that you can access through the mushrooms? Not in the same world. Well, not exactly. You see, the mushroom behaves like you expect a drug to behave. You take it, you sit around for a while, you feel a little funny in the stomach, your nose runs, you go to the bathroom, 
and then you have this experience. DMT isn't like that. DMT is you're in a room, people are talking to you about some, they're pushing some drug on you, and there's this little glass pipe, and then you do it, and at that point, the building blows up. (laughs) And, and, uh, you know, I've seen people come out of the DMT flash, and what they say is, what happened? What happened? And they don't even know, they, did we do it or did the building blow up? Did, is that, you know, because it's not like a drug. It's like an experience. It happens to you. It falls upon you. It's like an automobile accident. It, it, it has this, and I think that that has to do with the instantaneous transition. It happens so quickly that you say, this is not a drug, this is a place. The other thing about DMT that I think is really interesting is if you don't panic or if you're not a nervous or anxious type and you can be fairly objective, it doesn't do anything to your body. It doesn't do anything. It... It affects only the visual cortex, I think. I mean, there may be spillover, but it's incredibly selective. It's like surgical bombing, you know. It's just coming in on this one thing and hitting it so hard that you can't believe it. I mean, you reach through your body and you say... And the other thing is, it doesn't affect your mind so that you don't have illusions that you are now enlightened or you now understand something or you are it it's you stay the same your body is the same your mind is the same what has happened is that the world has just been replaced all this it's all gone 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 and there's not even three-dimensional space left and you're just looking out into this stuff saying hmm uh, you know, and and um, it's very—it's a great shock to the intellectually constipated. And I think I led the list. And it, it was just so shocking to me. I can't imagine anything more shocking. I mean, if flying saucers were to land on the south lawn of the White House, it's page two news compared to compared to this. And uh, I feel very fortunate. I mean, I somehow started out, it's, it was the quest for the weird that brought me so far. I was always a strange kid, and I was always into what people weren't into. So I missed out on a lot because everybody was into it. But I also got into a lot of weird stuff. And my my method is edge running. That's what I do. I had a friend, I had many weird friends who were very good for me and gave me great advice along the way. And one of those people never read a book unless it was 200 years old. And said, you know, you must be kidding. It's all vulgar after 1830. So, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in those places. Well, apparently, if you pursue the weird, 
it won't take you very long before you get to this. This is the main vein of the peculiar. I always talk about, and I might as well again, what the hell, that short story by Jorge Luis Borges in Labyrinths called The Sect of the Phoenix. Do you know that story? It's a page and a half long, and it talks about how there is this sect, and it's always existed as far as anybody can tell. And these sectarians have been persecuted in every pogrom in history. And these sectarians have prosecuted every pogrom in history. They are not associated with any race, any place, any religion. They are associated with an act. And the act is trivial. It involves something orange. It can be done in doorways. One child may initiate another. At first, the adept find it ridiculous and never speak of it. They refer to it among themselves as the secret. And he goes on and on talking about this thing. He's talking about this. It's true. Now, I was not initiated, so I've taken no oath in blood to say nothing. I found out I'm an... uh, a debunker, an exposer. And I've never met a sectarian. Everybody I, uh, who knows anything about DMT, I told them, except for the one person who told me. And, you know, this is a society where people jump out of airplanes for thrills. Uh, it's a thrill-crazed society, and DMT is not a problem in this society. Nobody wants it. It's too much. You know, it's as though there was a design process that went beyond the expectation of its engineers. I mean, you know, you go Chevrolet, Mercedes, Porsche, Maserati, Lamborghini, and then they say, please, no more, we can't stand it. Well, that's what this is. It's it's beyond <laughs> expectation. So... Uh, You know, we don't need stronger drugs. I never hope to have anything stronger than that. I mean, I think it carries you right to the threshold of the lesser lights. You see, uh, you know, to go further than that is to snap the umbilicus that binds us to the biological matrix. Do you experience any continuity in your connection with, in the mushroom and in DMT with these intelligent entities like from one trip to the next and has anybody else met the same friends you've met? On mushrooms, a lot of people report elves and stuff like that. The thing that happens to me on DMT that is so specific that elves offering the singing, language-making objects and all that... uh, It's hard to get people to report, and I don't know. Some people seem to have the same thing. People talk about a converging set of motifs. The motifs, there seem to be two ways to approach DMT. One is uh, as the carnival, the archetype of the carnival. Because one thing about DMT is it's furiously active. It's like a Bugs Bunny cartoon run at double speed. I mean, there's just all this zany stuff, this Marx Brothers kind of humor going on. And this is a thing about these elf creatures. They're into a kind of humor 
that is right on the edge of terrifying. It's sort of like hanging out with Hell's Angels, except they're your friends, you know? So as long as you keep everything cool, it's going to be all right. Uh, They're rough and tumble. And uh, uh, like the archetype of the circus, the central point of interest is the three rings and the clowns and the performing animals and the lady in the spangled costume. But then, away from the main action, it gets weird. It's sideshows. It's kinky. Hoochie-coochie dancers. Dark shadows. Pickpockets. Who knows what's going on out there? And it has this same idea. It's like an elf carnival. It's a troupe. It's a cosmic troupe. And then the other thing is, it's Christmas morning. You know, that that amazing childlike approach to the tree lit with lights and this expectation of gifts and all that. And in fact, it's interesting, uh, if you want to look at a folk way that seems to have not been fully explicated, uh, take a look for a minute at Santa Claus. Santa Claus is uh, the master of the elves, and Santa Claus's elves make toys. And Santa Claus is associated with the colors red and white, the colors of Amanita muscaria. And Santa Claus is associated with reindeer. And reindeer are part of the Amanita muscaria cult because you can drink the urine of the reindeer and it's better than the first get-go of the mushroom. And then, if all that weren't enough, Santa Claus uh, lives at the center of the world. He lives at the North Pole, where Yggdrasil, the magic world tree, uh, is growing. And then he is active at the winter solstice with his elf-giving, gift-giving elves. So this is clearly a very old folkway that has all the motifs of DMT uh, embedded in it. And it's the major area where we give permission for the expression of these images in our own culture. I mean, this is where we get uh, all of this stuff. And the magic toys of Santa's workshop are the demon artifacts of the elfin forges uh, that are alchemical productions. Yeah. It really is a Santa Claus. Hey. <laughs> there is a Santa Claus. <laughs> It puzzles my belief in elves is very puzzling to my children. <laughs> yeah. We've never had mushrooms before. What we would like to is there a uh, sort of good housekeeping seal you can get on? All right. If you run into it, is it likely to be clean, or are there things to watch out for? How does- the best advice I can give you—it's not what you want to hear—but uh, is you should grow it. Because growing it is an act of alchemical dedication. And it will, if you're not able to take the mushroom because of personality flaws, growing it will eliminate those flaws. Because growing it teaches you uh, attention to detail, cleanliness, punctuality, discretion all of these fine virtues which then uh, will serve you very well when you take it. And when you grow your own, then it's really alchemy. 
you know? I mean, this the white stuff is the seed, and you take rye, a la Robert Flood. You take rye and you inoculate it with this white stuff, and then, lo and behold, over a period of days, and with the helping hand of nature spirits, why, your friend comes to meet you. I, I, I don't know if it's a neophyte, a neospore, or a gametophyte. How do you tell if you've got... I mean, you can you can get this, that source for the growing the mushrooms? Oh, you mean the spore? How do you get the spore? And the instructions. Well, fortunately, I wrote a book on this subject. <laughs> <laughs> which um, I think it's in that catalog. And if you buy the book, in the back of the book is an ad for spores. So it's all there, no problem. It's on the shelf called Addictions of all places. Addictions, is this where they put it now in the stores? Oh, well, yes, we published under the names Otios and Oeniric. That's because I'm Otios and my brother is Oeniric. But, uh, yeah. Terrence, uh, to return to the Velt for a moment, what other theories are there that even come close, come close to explaining the, the, be- the, the straight theory, the new straight theory, which is in a book by William Calvin, the name of which escapes me, but in, anyway, uh, is that um, it was the coordination of the throwing arm that we were small and weak and we were predating upon these humongous beasts, mastodons and like that. And so we learned to throw things with incredible accuracy. No animal can throw like a human being can. So Calvin's theory is that in triangulating triangulating and coordinating the throwing arm, those cells began to replicate that were necessary for coordinating that complex data, and that set the cascade going. And that's the best theory. It seems to me it's very weak. There's no good ideas on human emergence. It's the speed of it, you see, that is so incredible. There are many interesting things about human beings when you contrast us to the uh, other primates. You've probably heard discussions of how different sexuality is uh, in human beings as opposed to other primates. That, for instance, there is in human females the suppressed estrus so that it's not possible by looking to tell whether a female is fertile or not, and it's not seasonally confined. And yet, those qualities of primate sexuality uh, completely set it apart. Uh, the hard wiring for language, but then more also important and not very well understood is the role of neoteny in human evolution. Do you all know what neoteny is? Neoteny is the preservation of juvenile characteristics into adulthood. And this often happens with animals. And, for instance, if you were to look, compare the ratio of our head size to body size compared to the ratio of a chimpanzee's head to its body size, you would see that we are very fetal in our proportions. Even in adulthood, we retain many, many fetal characteristics. Our hairlessness 
is a fetal characteristic. The prolongation of adolescence uh, in human beings is a neonatal trait. All this juvenilization seems to have occurred simultaneously with the expansion of the brain size. Well, to my mind, this supports the theory that I put to you because all this, uh, all this juvenilization is probably being caused by the same thing which I'm suggesting caused the expansion of brain size, i.e. exotic tertiary metabolites in food. And, and so we actually bear upon ourselves the stamp of an accelerated period of mutation that's gone on in the last million years. That's why we are, we are actually really freaky. I mean, you can sense this, I think, about us, that we're, uh, you line up all the monkeys and my God, the one on the end, the pink one, what's that about? And, and you know, they've done, um, they've done gene sequencing studies of the pygmy chimpanzee, which is apparently the closest living relative to human beings. Well, 95% of the genome of the pygmy chimpanzee is identical to the human genome. Well, that means that the 5% that is different is almost entirely taken up in the expression of superficial physical differences. Our height, our hairlessness, our head-to-body ratio, and all that. So I really think, you know, we're the creatures of an omnivorous diet. Our story really is a you-are-what-you-eat story. You're talking about the, the brief span of time even pushing that that's right. That's right. As opposed to, say, uh, uh, whales, which I know is not your favorite topic, uh, who had who had a much longer time with large brain size. Yes, I mean they evolved very leisurely and in an aqueous environment where the conquest of fire was not even a possibility, and uh, all, it has to do not with brain size so much as with your. Um, appendages into the world. I mean, you have to be able to f- chip stone. You have to be able to throw things. Otherwise, your intelligence will be very zen-like. And there may be such intelligence. I mean, I don't say that the dolphins and the whales don't think thoughts that we can't even conceive of and that are very satisfying to them and fully uh, expressive of their program of being. But they can't, they can't communicate about it, they can't build an image of it, they can't leave any record of it. So it's interfacing with matter is equally as important as, uh, as the quality of the thoughts behind the eyes, you know. Just another whole doorway that's so ignored and belittled is every night, the, you know, the launching pad when you hit the pillow. And, um, Dreams. As a culture... I mean, that's immense. The helpers that come, um, I wonder what the relationship between that and the plants. But it's, it's, it's as huge and boundary-dissolving and, and real. And just, uh, we fall asleep about it. Yes, I agree. If, if, if lucid dreaming were, can be made to function for everybody, if it's actually real then probably we can get rid of psychedelics. Uh, well, this is a... 
This is a good place to mention a really interesting thing. I tell most of my groups this because someday I'm going. Uh, some young researcher will hear me and follow this up. But here's an interesting piece of data: if you have smoked DMT at some point in your life, it's possible to have a dream in which the theme of DMT will be introduced, and you will smoke it, and it will actually completely happen. That is an important piece of evidence because what it shows is the chemical um, material is there, the mechanism is there. How? I mean, that's exciting. Imagine if you could just go into a brainwave pattern or something and begin to call it in. And it doesn't seem so far away if it's happening in the dream. They've done human sleep studies and they know that uh, endogenous production of DMT in the brain peaks around 4 a.m. in most people. Well, this correlates well with the peak REM activity. It means probably that DMT is driving dreaming in some fairly profound way. Dissolving the boundary between waking and sleeping is a classical shamanic technique for entry into the invisible world, either by sleep deprivation or some other way. So, yeah, this is a very good point. Uh, uh, the, The world of sleep and the psychedelic world, the question is why are we constructed so that we can't remember it's so frustrating. I mean, this is our main problem, is the mnemonic problem, both with the drugs and the dreams. Why do we go to worlds of incredible richness and complexity which we cannot remember anything about? It seems a strange statement on the economy of nature, uh, if there is an economy of nature. I was amazed at the state of dream theory. I hadn't paid much attention. About two months ago, there was an article in Scientific American on dreaming. It was the most reductionist. It, it was, they've, they've gone back a hundred years. I mean, basically, they're saying it's mostly undigested pieces of potato. Uh, <clears throat> it was an incredibly, I mean, they threw out all Freudian, all Jungian, all interpretive. Uh, the, 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 what's in vogue now is that it's junk data. Uh, it's the dumping ground, you know, meaningless. Any effort to understand dreams is like going through somebody else's wastebasket. It doesn't make any sense at all. So more denial of the power of, uh, of the unconscious. Orthodox science more and more is simply talking to itself because the bodies of experiences that people are building up in their own lives do not map onto the scientific model. I mean, most people have a very largely irrational component operating in their lives. I mean, we can identify it in each other uh, because we sort of share the same control language. But what about all those people out there in the, in the trailer courts of America who, you know, put your hand on the radio? I mean, this is not a scientific paradigm in action. Uh, this is pure voodoo. Uh, <clears throat> 
It was William James who said, uh, if we don't read the books with which we line our apartments, we are no better than our cats and dogs. (laughs) You don't need to have the experience every day of a miracle or something extraordinary to know that it's real. Well, the the place where the miraculous is uh, is most evident is uh, in falling in love. Falling in love is a really interesting phenomenon. I mean, you you can be the guy who marks the tires in the parking lot of the great corporation, and one day you see the daughter of the first, second, and fourth vice president go by, and you fall in love with her. And now watch what happens. Mountains are moved. Coincidences occur. Appointments canceled. Deaths, if necessary, in order to bring you together. And then you get married and are unhappily spend the rest of your life with this woman. <laughs> but in the, in the process of getting together, almost everybody experiences magic. It's almost as though the universal zeitgeist, what it's really interested in is gene matching. It's really interested in who gets horizontal with who with consequence because that's obviously how it steers and sculpts the historical animal. It understands that the pigments of this oil painting are genes and that the landscape is being painted with a genetic, in a genetic medium. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's very interesting. Opium. Well, the the civilization that built itself around opium was the late Minoan civilization. I mean, when they first did the translation, when Michael Ventris first translated Linear B, the tallies that they were translating, they thought this symbol was for wheat because the tallies were so huge, then they realized that were tallies for gum opium. It's a complicated question because the products of opium are fairly unsavory and virulent, although they do have their defenders. I, my analysis of opium and the way I've used it in my life was to uh, escape pain of one sort or another. Uh, the opium reverie is not as interesting as the hashish reverie because it's harder to retain. The way I look at late Minoan civilization is it was in great mourning for the passing of the goddess because Minoan Crete was the last bastion of the old, old goddess religion that had come out of Africa at the time of Chatal Hyoyuk, but it all died in Asia Minor in the fifth millennium. But it survived in Minoan Crete up until 1000 BC. When So for three millennia, Minoan civilization drifted in an anhistorical dream, and slowly over time, the uh, accentuation of opium uh, use increased. 
it's interesting, uh, you know, opium, you, you say this and people's eyes widen. Isn't this a drug of degradation and addiction? Opium has been around for thousands and thousands of years. It wasn't until 1624 that the, Amer- that the English physician John Playfair noticed for the first time, so far as we can tell, that it was an addictive substance. Before 1624, no one knew opium was addicting. There is one mention in Dioscorides, but other than that. So the virulence of opium addiction is tremendously overrated. In fact, it's it's silly to talk about it that way, unless you're using it as an instrument of national policy. It's funny, you know, we have drug wars. A hundred years ago, a little more than a hundred years ago, they had a drug war in the Far East. It was called the Opium War. What was the Opium War about? The British government's wish to sell opium on the po- in the ports of China against the objections of the Chinese emperor. The Chinese emperor didn't want opium in China, and the British whose tea trade had undergone a collapse, had shifted their agricultural production to opium, and they were unloading it on the Chinese population while they tried to figure out what to do with all these tea ships. So in a hundred years, we've gone from a war to force people to buy opium to, you know, the present state of manic schizophrenic (coughs) attitudes about it. Yeah. This is very possible. Pain is is a very subjective thing, and and uh, I imagine much of antiquity was fairly unpleasant, and uh, and opium would be there, and it would certainly be there if you developed tumors, untreatable ulcers, any painful chronic condition. Opium would be your obvious recourse. Addiction as a general concept, it's probably in John Playfair. They began purifying and, and using alcohol extractions. You know, opium is... Uh, it's interesting how these intoxicants... I mean, uh, both opium and alcohol were made popular by alchemists who thought they had discovered the elixir of life. Uh, when uh, Raimondus Lully discovered distilled alcohol... He got so jacked up behind it that he announced the end of the world. He, he said, you know, hey, this stuff is so good. <laughs> and uh, opium was popularized by Paracelsus. In fact, Paracelsus invented uh, uh, chemical medicine. If you want to look for a kind of a bad guy, or at least a black hat figure, it was Paracelsus who said we shouldn't use herbs, we should use purified extractions, we should make pills, uh, we should get rid of all this midwifery and all this nonsense and put medicine on a scientific basis. Of course, he was also a mad alchemist and, uh, and, uh, and popularized opium. In fact, von Helmut, uh, a student of his, was uh, so into popularizing opium that he signed his alchemical treatises, uh, Dr. Opiatus. <laughs> well, it's 1130. Um, yeah, last um, shot. Um, with uh, ayahuasca, can someone take that alone, or is it best to have sort of a, uh, a guide? 
well, this issue of the guide, it's a good place to end. Uh, it depends on the kind of personality you are. I mean, I, I have always taken things alone because other people are such complicated creatures and I can't ever relax completely in the presence of another person. And so they kind of hold me on the surface. But there certainly have been trips when I would have loved to have somebody to hug. Uh, if it doesn't bother you to be around people or you don't feel that as a kind of impediment, then there should be a sitter and always starting out or in uncertain situations there should be a sitter but the sitter should be very non-invasive and my style of psychedelic tripping is calm dark comfortable not no music no music because I want to see what it is in a situation of sensory deprivation, which is where it's most beautiful. The best music is in silence, the best pictures is in darkness. Always I go in. Yeah. It's possible to take psychedelics and entirely miss the point because you are so extroverted and so nervous and agitated. I mean, uh, Roland Fisher, who did all this experimental work with psilocybin, gave it to 25,000 people, published all these important papers. And he and I were talking one day, and I said, well, but Roland, aside from all this data and all this stuff, you know, what do you make of the hallucinations? Just the source of them, the complexity of them? He said, I never closed my eyes. I never closed my eyes. I mean, is this denial or what? I, I, I could hardly believe my ears, you know? I mean, the, the psychedelic experience is not... It shouldn't be projected. You don't take it and then look for a good movie or go out to catch ACDC or... It, it's just silent darkness and let this stuff come out of the organism and you will be amazed i mean this is your birthright your real inner riches and it's uh, it's more than you expect more than you imagine more than you suppose more than you can suppose i mean it's the it's the center axis of what it is to be a minded, reflecting human being. I mean, we can go through life without knowing this, but is the game to go through life without knowing about as much as possible? That sounds like a fairly ass-backward approach to things. I think, you know, we want to assimilate life. We want to explore it. We want to find the path to the next level. I mean, I can't believe that... I, I sort of believe the Catholic idea that there's an obligation to do something and to behave correctly, but it has nothing to do with attending Mass on Sunday and keeping your language clean. It has to do, I think, with an act of intellectual heroism of some sort, uh, 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 a way of positioning yourself vis-a-vis -vis the experience of the world that then can lift you to higher and higher levels. And that's what these things were put here for. And if we use them, I still have hope. If we don't use them, 
then the momentum of the past will carry us into catastrophe. So, you know, the choice is entirely uh, ours. Ours and the societies that we live in that we have a responsibility to reform. Well, that's it, folks. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Now, if you are new to the world of psychedelics, you may think that Terence's descriptions of his DMT experiences are maybe a bit over the top. However, uh, should you ever be fortunate enough to have the experience yourself, one of your first thoughts may be to wonder why Terence was so conservative when he spoke about it. (laughs) I've experimented with a wide range of psychoactive substances for a long time. But nothing in my experience comes even close to what happens when you smoke NNDMT. It's amazing beyond description. And the most interesting part, uh, well, at least to me, is that right now, at this very moment, your brain is storing some DMT that it manufactured for you last night. And uh, that really blows my mind. Now, uh, just a quick note here to acknowledge something to our saloners of a more literary bent. As you most likely know already, that uh, story by Jorge Luis Borges that uh, Terence mentioned isn't universally acclaimed to be about DMT, at least according to Wikipedia. While the entry about the sect of the Phoenix on Wikipedia does acknowledge Terence's idea, apparently uh, many scholars believe that Borges uh, was actually referring to homosexuality, which uh, seems to make a lot of sense when you re-listen to Terence's description of that story. Terence's take on it, however, uh, reminds me of the old saying that if your only tool is a hammer, well, then every problem looks like a nail. That said, uh, what Terence was talking about, uh, the fact that you could think that you were in DMT space while during a dream, well, that's more than conjecture. Not only have I spoken with several people that this has happened to, it's happened to me as well, and more than once. The most satisfying time was when I dreamt that I was having an ayahuasca experience. And when I awoke, I could remember that dream in exactly the same way that I remembered my ayahuasca experiences uh, the morning after. And uh, (laughs) believe me, if I could trigger those kinds of dreams at will, I would uh, probably do it every night. I'm sure that in one of the earlier talks by Terrence that uh, I've podcast, He also mentioned something about the fact that today we are literally bathed in electromagnetic signals that are packed with significant amounts of information. But it's something that I think may be worth our time to uh, consider a little bit more. You see, when you live in a big city, one with uh, numerous television and radio broadcasts, coupled with all of the wireless communications taking place on cell phones, it presents a, well, an interesting picture of us humans swimming through a dense sea of information, and in many languages. And by using the proper device and tuning into these signals, we can experience them one at a time. Now, we take for granted that this can be done with a cell phone, radio, television, or Wi-Fi device of some kind, but what about tuning in by using a plant, such as a mushroom? Do you think that perhaps a DMT flash or a mushroom experience simply turns our bodies into a receiving device that can pull some of these signals out of the air? Well, it's certainly something to consider, don't you think? 
Also, uh, while I'm not going to go into it here in any detail, what Terrence said about the Pentagon not investigating the possibility of there being a parallel world, well, it's not actually correct. I have uh, met with several high-level Ph.D. types who uh, do work for the U.S. Department of Defense and who study things such as remote viewing, ESP, and uh, other so-called New Age concepts of spirituality. And while this is only a small portion of the goings-on of the Pentagon, they are, in fact, spending millions of dollars investigating these uh, so-called occult concepts. While their work is highly classified, uh, what these researchers are allowed to talk about has at times raised the hair on the back of my neck. And uh, I'm talking about deep science here. It's uh, serious work for these people, and uh, we may all eventually be surprised at what comes out of it. But uh, I'm not counting on any of it being revealed in my own lifetime, and I guess that's about all that I can say about these things right now. Now, uh, just a quick note to any new listeners here. When Terrence mentioned that the first stop, if you are interested in investigating psychedelics, should be the library, well, as our longtime listeners already know, today that library is uh, actually online and may be found at arrowid.org. E-R-O-W-I-D, arrowid.org. Without exception, uh, Arrowid is by far the most significant and trustworthy source of information on these topics that you're going to find. It was founded uh, by and is still run by my friends Earth and Fire, and I'm willing to stake my own reputation on the accuracy of the information that you can find on their website. And if you're thinking about trying some substance for the first time, be sure to first read all of the bad trip reports about that substance. Anyone can handle a good experience, but if you read about a bad experience on a particular substance and then determine that you're not up to handling a trip like that, well... Move on to something more easygoing. Enough said. Now there's one last thing I'd like to bring up about the talk that we just listened to, and that is where Terence mentioned the fact that many shamans speak about another dimension being a place where one can find what he called an ecology of souls. Now, this is a concept that I've subscribed to in the past, and it still holds great interest for me. However, I've come to a point where the concept of a soul has begun to bother me. I don't have time to explain all that I've been thinking about this right now, but in a nutshell, here it is. I happen to accept the concept of biological evolution on this planet as being responsible for single-celled organisms to have eventually evolved into significantly more complex beings that one day became great apes that, over many millions of years, evolved into upright walking humans. So, here's my question. At what point in this evolutionary chain did the soul come into being? Did a non-material thing that we call a soul evolve along with us? Or did it somehow get inserted into the great apes that uh, we now think of as human? Was there a big ecology of souls in another dimension that once these apes reached a certain point in evolution, these already formed souls started inserting themselves into those great apes, thus creating the human race? I haven't uh, answered any of these questions to my own satisfaction yet, but I do find them worth the time to think about and to discuss. In other words, for me, it's a kind of a chicken and egg situation. Did the soul come first and then come to earth? And if so, when, how, and why did that first soul decide to inhabit a human body? 
Or uh, is the planet Earth a kind of soul furnace in which they are forged anew? Well, maybe in your late-night dorm room discussions you can solve this problem for me. And if you do, I hope that you will share your ideas with us on our forums. And speaking of the forums, I hope that you will also go to psychedelicsalon.com and click on the forum links in the uh, main menu at the top of the page. If you do, you'll see that uh, you have to register to use these forums, but please don't think that you need to register as a paying subscriber. As of today, we now have 539 subscribers, the vast majority of whom are subscribed as student members. There's no fee for a student member, and it's the best way to try the forums for a year to uh, see if they'll actually be worth the while for you. In fact, uh, right now, there are only 30 fellow saloners who are paid members of our forums, But so that you know, those 30 people are the ones who are supporting the continuation of these podcasts. In years past, I've accepted donations to cover the expenses associated with these programs. And uh, thanks to the support of a small number of our fellow saloners, these podcasts have now continued for almost 11 years. But instead of uh, holding another pledge drive, I'm experimenting with using the funds from the forums to support our podcasts. So, there won't be a pledge drive this year, and as long as there are enough paying members of the forums, these podcasts will be coming your way for many more years. So, I want to thank all of our donors, both uh, present and past. And if at any time during these past 11 years, you've sent in a donation to the salon, just uh, sign up as a free student member, and uh, then send me a private message from uh, within the forums, and let me know that you're a previous donor. I'll then change your status to lifetime member. And no, you don't need a receipt. Uh, (laughs) But we would love to have your input on our forums, uh, which I'll talk more about next week. But for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be careful out there, my friends.